Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. There are other paths you can choose. You can choose a path of light and love and forgiveness towards yourself. And if you had told me this a year ago that that could be developed, I would have, I would not have believed it. But I sit here right now today feeling like living proof that it is possible. You do have to do the work. You are going to have to face a lot of pain. But if you put in the work and you focus and you dedicate yourself to that as your top priority, that it can be done. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, people. Um, We have a very, very interesting and, for me at least, quite surprising and moving episode this week. Uh, My guest is Tim Ferriss. I suspect... Pretty much everybody knows who Tim is, but just in case, uh, the man has published five number one bestsellers, uh, including The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, The 4-Hour Chef, Tools of Titans, and his new one, Tribe of Mentors. He's also got a a huge podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, uh, and a blog, and lots of other stuff. Um, On this podcast, though, we're primarily talking about his – we will talk a little bit about his new book, The Tribe of Mentors, but um, primarily talking about his reasonably new or let's just say newly intensified meditation habit and and I would say radically intensified. And it's brought up some really powerful, important, painful stuff for him – and so I feel like we're sort of you're going to hear a pretty significant public figure at a very interesting point in his life and personal development. And he uh, holds very little, if anything, back in this interview, which I think uh, is a credit to him because I think it's going to be useful to a lot of people. So a uh, big thanks to Tim in advance and thanks to you for listening. Here we go. Tim Ferriss. Nice to finally meet you, man. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been following your work for a long time. Likewise. The empire you've built <laughs> and continue to build. It's very, yes. very impressive. Thank you. This accidental career of mine, yes. Accident? You really feel like it was, you just kind of backed into it? I do. I do. I never had any plans to write at all. Certainly, that's what acted as a springboard for the podcast and everything else. Uh, the promise I made to myself when I graduated from college was that I would never write anything longer than an email ever again after my senior <laughs> thesis almost killed me. The size of your recent books would uh, right. <laughs> would would have surprised the younger you. Yes, would be a nod to the complete abject failure of that <laughs> promise to myself. <laughs> so I've been hearing stories of late, and I know you've talked about it publicly, about your sort of experiences with meditation. So mm-hmm. I want to talk about your new book for sure, and actually some of the other ones as well. But if it's okay with you, I'd love to start with your meditation peregrinations what's going on oh peregrinations i know i know is that related to a peregrine falcon i I think it may be actually (laughs) that sounds great yeah but i don't know i mean i just look i saw it in the thesaurus and used it (laughs) uh we don't have to talk about my new book at all by the way we can just talk about whatever is most interesting okay cool so i still want to talk about it yeah yeah i mean i wouldn't mind mentioning it (laughs) i've been beating that drum for a while tribe of men (laughs) available everywhere books are sold yes uh Meditation was something I was very resistant to in some respects for a very long time. I feared that, A, it would be too new age 
hippy dippy and um, unrigorous. If that makes sense. I, I appreciate the scientific method and all the things that it has brought us. I appreciate to the extent that humans can be objective, the ability to objectively assess data and evidence and living in the Bay area for 17 years. I've since moved, but I was exposed to a lot of people who were anything but any of those things, uh, who very often at the same time were proselytizers for any number of things. Did you do, <laughs> Fire sticks, dream catchers, dream catchers, <laughs> meditation. Right, right. And <clears throat> I often say meditation has been the victim of the worst marketing campaign for any terrible, ever. Terrible, yes. terrible, terrible. So now when I'm trying to explain why I meditate to someone who is equally uh, unimpressed by the branding heritage of this word in English, I, I might say something like a, a mind. It's a bath. It's a warm bath for your mind. But at the time, uh, for many, many years, I had attempted meditation because I'd lived in Japan for a year when I was 15 as an exchange student, which totally changed my life. And there was forced meditation, although, of course, in Japanese, they don't call it exactly that, at the beginning and end of judo practice. Mm. And I saw how that impacted my performance, but it served more so as a visualization practice for me. And... Uh, I was v always very fascinated by sports performance and competed for a long time myself. And I would read the abstracts and studies related to the transfer of, say, visualization to sports performance. Free throws in basketball, skiing, you name it. Uh, when meditation was then pitched to me much later as a means of decreasing anxiety... The form it took, which was following the breath or visualizing a candle or fill in the blank, there are many different types that I attempted, uh, did not seem to be my sport. Can I just jump in for one second? So you, you can you, jump in all you want. You, yeah. you had anxiety? I did. I've, I've always... Because uh, you don't project as somebody who has anxiety. By the way, I mean, yeah. Yeah. me too. I've had a lot of anxiety yeah. and depression my whole life, so no judgment. But you yeah, yeah. present as like a baller, some, somebody who's uh, super confident. I've done well. You can be confident and anx anxious. Well, that's true. Time. Yes. I write, I've done a lot of work in the last few years, last five years in particular, uh, including tools outside of but related to meditation. So I do not feel anxious right now uh, in general, not just this moment. But there was a point, and uh, I'll just I'll just jump to the uh, the the movie trailer scene that might open this. You know, this trailer's been approved for all audiences, and then we have Tim Ferriss writing with great difficulty the Four Hour Chef, which was the first major acquisition by Amazon Publishing, which Amazon then announced in the New York Times with the acquisition of this title for our chef. And for those who aren't familiar, Amazon was going to effectively compete head to head against publishers for the recruitment of talent, i.e. authors, advances, and so on. And this created quite a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt in the publishing world, which uh, had a number of effects on my experience. I, I was willing to take that risk. I like being the first person to try things. <laughs> Sometimes that works out. And sometimes you just end up charging over the hill and catching all the arrows. <laughs> so it was the latter in this case, mostly. And I don't regret making the decision based on the information I had at the time. I think it was the right decision. But the 
book, even as I was writing it, I knew that it was not only going to be boycotted by Barnes and Noble and some of the almost all of the book retailers, but also the big box, Costco, Target, and so on, which I hadn't foreseen. So I'm writing a book, which is always difficult for me, uh, of infinitely greater complexity than any of my previous books. First four-color book, I somehow thought it would be a good idea to learn photography by taking a third of the photographs myself. And we're talking about a thousand-plus photographs in this book. Uh, Sounds like classic Tim Ferriss. Classic. Like, yeah, let me... Oh, I'm choking on this cookie. Let me try to stuff five more in my mouth. (laughs) And uh, I was excited by the learning prospect of doing these many new things. I underestimated just how hard they were. And in the production process, I began to resort to uh, an old friend slash faux friend of mine, which is stimulants. Mm-hmm. So I think we all have our molecules. Yeah. And my molecule was never alcohol, thank God, because I have alcoholism in my family. And that's really destroyed lives that I've seen firsthand. Uh, I can drink. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't pull me to the precipice. Uh, very fortunately, not all stimulants. So things like cocaine, unappealing. Uh, but in high school, through wrestling, actually, I was introduced by an older student to something called the ECA stack, which was ephedrine, caffeine, and aspirin. Wow, and, ephedrine. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the diet was often used as a diet drug? Often used as a diet drug, but it, when you combine ECA, and I'm not recommending this, I'm doing, I'm actually advising against this, it's, it's very much a 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 12. Mm. They have a number of overlapping biochemical effects that are very, very powerful. And it had such a profound effect on my endurance that I started using it as this other student did every day. And then it got to twice a day. And then it got to three times a day, which some bodybuilders and other athletes were doing for fat loss. Flash forward to for our chef, I've tried very hard to wean myself off of that dependence because uh, it had had some very uh, pronounced negative side effects. But I'm burning the candle at both ends. Uh, the deadline is highly compressed. I usually take three years per book, although recently that's changed. But for my, for my first several books, it was three years a book, basically. And I decided to do this one in a year and a half. So you have increased complexity, decreased timeline. And then knowing that when this boulder is pushed up the hill, if it gets pushed up the hill, that it's mostly crickets from a retail standpoint that's going to greet it. And psychologically, that really... Yep me up. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse on you this can, show. You can. We may bleep it, but uh, right. you can. Right. I'm yeah. not allowed to. So. All right. <laughs> I'll make a, I'll curse for both of Please. us. Please. I love cursing. I'm cursing for two. Uh, I'll blame it on Long Island. But <clears throat> uh, so I started taking what two friends, well, two friends and I affectionately referred to as little reds, which were over the counter pre-workout stimulants. Uh, and that certainly dramatically uh, magnifies my perceived productivity, right? Not necessarily productivity, mm-hmm. but perceived productivity. It also equally magnifies any type of anxiety. Of course. Yes. And, uh, the voice in your head just gets speedier. Yeah. It gets speedier and you're sleeping less, which right. doesn't help <laughs> matters. Everything worse. So I, uh, I really completely burned myself out, but I pushed through it. I didn't stop and finished Everything there was to finish. The book came out. The book, uh, well, we don't have to name names, but a lot of the bestseller lists that people are familiar with 
are surprisingly, if they were to look under the hood even a little bit, subjective. They're not pure tallies of numbers from Nielsen Bookscan. And it did not do as well as I would have liked. I was very proud of the book. I'm still very proud of the book, uh, but fell into a depression after that. Oh, I get it. Yeah. And throughout all of this, and I've battled with uh, bipolar depression my entire life, as have many, many males on both sides of my family. And uh, during this period, two people at different points, friends of mine, suggested something I'd given up on many times already, which was meditation. And my response was always effectively been there, done that, tried it, didn't work. It's just, it's you not were just me. referring to Japan or were you just referring, I was referring to? I had tried uh, some Vipassana meditation. I had read books by John Kabat-Zinn. I had read many multiple books because I, the allure of the supposed benefits that I saw friends experiencing was something I wanted. Nonetheless, the lock didn't seem to fit the key that I had. And what was the problem in your mind, so to speak? I don't think that most of the books I read, uh, not specifically John Kabat-Zinn, I read that when I was about 16 after I came back from Japan, so I don't think I was even ready for the subject at the time. They were too much woo, too little prescription Mm -hmm. for me. And it was like, okay, just follow your breath. And to me, that's not specific. What does that mean? Exactly, right? Uh, it It would be as if the doctor said, take some medicine. It's like, well... All right, we're missing a few details. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I found most of the books very much, uh, very high on Dharma talk, very high on scripture and Buddha references, very low on what I would consider a pragmatic, specific recipe that is not prone to misinterpretation. What you needed was a meditation book written by you. (laughs) Yeah, well, all of the things I write, that was quite a porky pig, I just did that. Uh, all of the books I write are books I can't find for myself. Right, right. Uh, That's why I said that. Yeah. And, and also you have, you, you, you get pretty damn specific. I get super specific. Yeah. And uh, then what ended up happening is not meditation per se as the broad term, but very specifically, and what I'm about to say provokes different responses in different people, but that's okay. Uh, TM, Transcendental Meditation, was recommended to me very specifically by uh, Rick Rubin, a uh, very, very impressive music producer. People can check out his dis- discography. It's, it's crazy. Unbelievable. Beyond. Yeah, yes. beyond, yes. beyond. So he recommended to me on several times. But Rick doesn't really recommend. He's very soft, at least in this area. And he said, have you ever have you ever thought of trying transcendental meditation? You know? And he was very, very gentle with it. And the fact was, no, I hadn't. But since it's Rick Rubin, <laughs> like, you know, all right. Rick has done a lot. The other fear I think that it held me back from fully embracing meditation is the people I met who gave me the most frequent sales pitches were not hard driving type A personalities, to put it mildly, right? More the like dope smoking, it's four in the afternoon and I should grab breakfast because I'm hungry set. And I didn't find that example compelling but you're friends with sam harris i am friends with sam harris uh so sam uh i don't want to speak for sam but sam doesn't always uh, his go-to tool would not be tm no not tm but it would be it would be meditation yeah because he was sam harris for the uninitiated is a an amazing writer and philosopher podcaster 
and mutual friend of ours who mm -hmm. he got me on my first meditation retreat. Yeah. Yeah. So Buddhist Sam, meditation, not TM. Yeah. So Sam has had a very significant impact on me, but that was after I took the red pill. And I took the red pill specifically. Okay, now it, these are not little reds you're referring to. Sorry, this is the Morpheus red pill. Okay, this is Matrix. The, that's right, the Matrix reference. Uh, and in fact, at that time, this would have been 2009, 2010. I don't know if Sam and I had met yet. Uh, I see. Okay. We might have. We so we this is around the time when you were rejecting meditation. 2009, 2010. That's right. Yeah. For the umpteenth time. Yes. <laughs> and then Rick... I had lunch with Rick, and he recommended that. And then, for me, density of repetition tends to persuade me. If something comes up a lot in a short period of time. And then, and then I would say three or four days later, very close friend of mine, I just saw him last night, in fact, Chase Jarvis, who's one of the most successful commercial photographers, period, out there, works with a lot of incredible brands, wonderful craftsman, really knows his work, also the CEO of a company called Creative Live, which is equally impressive, gets a lot done. He was on the Olympic development team for soccer prior to all of that, really gets a lot done. And he said, have you ever thought of doing TM? <laughs> I was like, okay, this is the second time I've heard this. Give me your pitch. What's your pitch? And ultimately he gave the pitch. And then I found out that it was at the time, whatever it was, $1,500 to have someone give you a mantra. And I was just like, if I want to go see David Koresh, <laughs> like, I, do I really have to pay $1,500 for someone to give me like a two-syllable nonsense word? So it sounded It sounded culty. Yeah. It sounded off. And uh, he expected me to say that, I think. And he said, look, you seem really anxious. You seem very much at the edge. And I was. And I said, yes, that's all true. And he said, what do you have to lose? You have $1,500. Spend the money. You can leave after the first day. If, if it really rankles you and pushes you in a direction you don't want to go. And that was ultimately the pitch that got it. It was, look, there is some potential upside, I believe. And as someone who's done this for several years, I can tell you it's helped me. And the downside's very limited. So what do you have to lose? You're clearly a f mess right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did it. And I was very fortunate to get a teacher who matched me. And I think it was partially because I presented my biases and feelings right up front in the first meeting I had with the orientation TM person in San Francisco. I said, look, just so you know what you're dealing with here, so you don't get frustrated. <laughs> I told them all of the baggage that I was bringing in. And they introduced me to a teacher named Laurent who was a former competitive athlete and he presented it in a very once you get past the initial like offering of fruit and flowers and a number of languages i don't speak and then the mantra once you get past that which was a lot for me to just like swallow or bite, <laughs> bite my tongue over it didn't last very long it was really just a portion of the first meeting once you get past that it's actually the delivery is very secular very very secular and now i, I don't want to lose the thread but now I'm less sensitive to all of the, That's what I would have, yeah, I'm less sensitive yeah. to what I would have perceived as the hand wavy God mm -hmm. Dharma stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the time I was so repelled mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons that we don't need to get into. Religion just did not sit well with me, even if it was a pseudo religion. It 
meditation was then delivered to me in a very pragmatic step-by-step all you have to do is repeat this mantra i suggest you take 30 seconds to get settled here are a few tips for how to sit and here are a number of options depending on what's most comfortable and the specificity really and the specificity and simplicity really appealed to me and i did my four afternoons or four lunch breaks of practice and then i stuck with it and uh, i i have since that time uh, experimented with other types of meditation and incorporated other aspects of different perhaps schools of meditation if you want to phrase it that way i did a silent 10-day Vipassana retreat at Spirit Rock not too long ago. Just, again, for folks who don't know the term, Vipassana would be sort of old-school Buddhist meditation, which Mm -hmm. is quite different in technique from from, uh, transcendental meditation. No mantra. Much, much, much for me, much, much more difficult. Uh, And uh, Sam Harris, coming back to Sam then, who wrote a tremendous book, Waking Up, also has a hilarious Sam's a funny guy people don't yeah. I shouldn't say people but most most folks who think of Sam don't have exposure to just how funny he is also yeah. what is great is to have dinner with Sam and his wife and watch his oh, wife yeah. make fun of him oh, and yeah. that is awesome oh yeah she's amazing so uh, Sam then once I got to know him or I may have even known him at the time but when it became clear that this is a subject we could talk about together I didn't know Sam for that. This was before he had written much about it. Uh, then had also an impact and informed some of the decisions I made about, for instance, the silent retreat. I mean, the first person I called as soon as I had received news that I would be attending this retreat because it's very much coveted each spot and you have to enter a lottery and that's very involved. Uh, Sam was the first person I called because Tam person's not going to necessarily have the toolkit or the experience to advise on such an experience, but Sam did. Well, TM people, how would they even feel about you going on a Vipassana retreat? Uh, they they were supportive. Uh, I mean, and by they, I really mean Laurent. He's the only, uh, he's one of two people I have regular contact with, somewhat regular contact with within the world of TM. Uh, primarily if, when, I, when I feel like I need a brush up or I've fallen off the wagon and would like to get back on with some social accountability. Then uh, there are one one or two people, uh, Bob Roth being the other. Who's actually going to be a guest on this podcast. Oh, great. He's got a new book coming out. Yeah. Let me just stop you for one second in the thread here because between – so you, you started TM, and but then there were several years that passed before you decided to go on this silent Vipassana retreat. I guess – You know, that was, that was a few months ago. Okay, so I really want to hear about that. But I first would like to know what uh, – you were anxious and depressed. Mm-hmm. You started doing TM. Did it help? It did help. It did help. I I wouldn't say that it by itself was enough, I mean, uh, to get me to where I am right now, uh, which is not perfect, which is not flawless. But my God, in the last year, I mean, I'm a different person completely. Really? Very much a different person. And however, it what it demonstrated for me was a proof of concept. And this was really important. Important is an understatement. And that was, I'm sure I haven't made up this example, there are many different ways you can phrase it, but the ability, if you're inside the washing machine, to become an observer and to step six inches to the other side of the glass so that you're looking, not only looking into the washing machine 
to observe what is moving around, but also the fact that you can observe this conceptual washing machine to begin with. Right? Another way to put it would be learning that there is a teachable, learnable skill that allows you to to go from being in the movie of your thoughts, mm-hmm. whatever that movie is, could be horror, could be Mike Myers chasing you around, <laughs> could be cliffhanger, could be Disney movie, whatever it might be, you have the ability to not just be a character in the movie swept up in some plot line that you have likely invented, but also to step back and sit in the audience and observe the story that you've created. It's mindfulness. Right. So what TM did for me was demonstrate, A, that was possible, B, that I didn't have to control my thoughts. Now, that I do think that is, in, we could delve into it, but controlling or molding your thoughts, I do think, can be a, a very powerful skill. But when I had attempted to meditate previously, I viewed thinking as a failure <laughs> within meditation. Right. I, me too. Right. That is the primordial misunderstanding. Right. And then when I began to view it as practice stepping outside the washing machine. Yeah. That's it. Like the practice, the repetition of each, let's just say bicep curl and meditation is not the absence of thought. It is each time you recognize, Oh, I'm in the washing machine. Let me try to step out and watch the washing machine. That was a very profound. And I don't use this word very much, but paradigm shift for me. It's like, Oh wow. The reason I've been, quote unquote, failing all along is because I misunderstood the whole thing. <laughs> You're playing the wrong game. I was playing the wrong game. I was like trying to play checkers on a chessboard. It's like, oh, no wonder this is so hard. Actually, it's the other way around. Yeah. You were trying right. to play chess on yes. a checkerboard. Yes. That's, You're that's making a very good it so much harder than it yeah. needs to be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's that's actually exactly right. I've never used that analogy before. So thank you for <laughs> correcting it. Uh, yeah. No, you use the analogy correctly. It's just that... It, 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 it's it, you you describe a process that I've gone through that I continue to go through pretty much every time I meditate, which yeah. is realizing I'm just being such a jerk to myself. <laughs> and it, it, this thing is so much easier yeah. than we make it. Yeah. yeah. So, so so just to stay with the chronology, though, so you, you TM didn't solve everything for you, but it really helped you notice anxiety and depression rearing its. Uh, ugly head. I still use it. I still use yeah. TM as a tool. It's just not the only tool. So what got you to the point where you wanted to do the silent meditation retreat? Why? That's a big leap. It is a big leap. Uh, I... Part of me is not sure, but uh, I would say Sam had an influence, certainly. A number of folks I met in Silicon Valley... Uh, some f- close friends of mine who had this entire side of their lives dedicated to mindfulness practice I was not aware of yeah. piqued my curiosity. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, wait a second. So the people who've been so loudmouthed and brash about like bashing me over the head with Ganesh or whatever <laughs> actually aren't the people who have, in my experience, the deepest practice. Yeah. And the people right around me who had the deepest practice had never talked to me about the fact that they do three silent retreats a year. I was like, wow, 
what does that mean? <laughs> huh. And uh, there were including some people who are so, to my mind, the most frenetic, scatterbrained, ADHD, like Adderall chomping people I've ever met. <laughs> and yet they did these silent retreats and they credit those silent retreats with tremendously helping them to function. And so I then I started to wonder, what would they be like without that? <laughs> and what am I right now that I can't see? Mm-hmm. How might the silent retreat affect me? I don't know. And um, I was curious, I was very curious. And Jack Cornfield also, who's uh, very, for those people who don't know, incredibly well-respected for the sake of simplicity, Buddhist meditation teacher who's one of perhaps say five or six people largely credited with bringing those practices to the West. Mm-hmm. I asked him at one point, I was like, why are you guys all Jewish? <laughs> He's like, I know it sounds like a law firm. He's like, I don't know. And we talked about it. Um, so that's a whole separate conversation. But uh, Jack, I had a pull to Jack. I don't know why exactly. I'd never met him. I'd read some of his work. And it ended up that he was close friends with a close friend of mine, Adam Ghazali, who is one of the foremost neuroscience researchers in the world. He has the Ghazali lab at UCSF, which I've uh, supported at different points and been involved with both as a subject and as an experimenter, really being handheld through the process. But uh, Adam's work has been on the cover of nature, which is like winning the triple crown as far as science is concerned. And he is very close to Jack, which I found incredibly interesting because Adam is by training, by necessity, one of the most skeptical numbers driven objective minds I've ever met. And, uh, Jack was going to be leading co-leading this retreat at spirit rock. And he is advancing in years supposedly one of his last, maybe his last. And I thought to myself, you know what? This has been on my mind for a long time. Let me see if I can roll snake eyes and actually get into this. And it took me a few years actually to finally get a spot. And I did get a spot and uh, it was really to see what would happen. And what happened was not what I expected. (laughs) What happened? Now you have me, man. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. 
So we should just say Spirit Rock um, is a meditation retreat center in Marin, Northern California. Northern California. It's where I did my first retreat, oh, actually. Oh, no yes. Yeah, Woodacre. Beautiful. Beautiful. It is super beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful location. And... So what happened? All right. So what happened was uh, I had a tough time. I had a really tough time. and Not uncommon. I was meditating twice a day leading up to it. So TM up to that point for me had been predominantly morning practice. I had not done it twice a day. I, I had and still find the 3 or 4 p.m. afternoon practice to be very challenging. Like Once I'm up and going and like running full tilt on the treadmill, it's very difficult and uh, usually unappealing for me to hit pause mm. and, and do that in the, in the late afternoon. But I, I did do that for several weeks of prep leading up to Spirit Rock. And I, I also added a layer on top of it, which to their credit was advised against. But I have a lot of experience with fasting. So I layered fasting on top. So I fasted for two days prior to the retreat and then the first five days. So I fasted for seven days. Whoa. And uh, then decided I'm going to flash. I'm just I'm chronologically jumping around a little bit, but I decided to break my fast when I was sitting in the meditation hall, which you know very intimately, I'm sure, and did about three hours straight of primarily sitting meditation. And the only thoughts that came to mind were calamari, fried chicken, calamari, fried chicken, <laughs> calamari, fried chicken, calamari, fried chicken. And I was like, you know, neither I, of which are available. Yeah, neither of which are available. Yet. And uh, <laughs> I'm no professional meditator, but I, I concluded that was probably unproductive. <laughs> yeah. And broke the fast. But I up to day five, I would say I tracked along with most of the group. And we say silent retreat, but it's important to note that each night, at least when I was there, there was a scheduled Dharma talk. And coming into it, I didn't know what Dharma was. I didn't know what I thought blanking on the word for a group that meditates. Together. Sangha. There we go. Sangha. So someone said, oh, well, in my Sangha. And I was like, what? And they're like, you don't know what a Sangha is? And I'm like, no. And they're like, how many retreats have you done? I'm like, this is my first. They're like, oh, my God. <laughs> You're going to have an interesting time the first day. Even though it's the first time we're meeting, I mean, I know enough about you to know that adding this fasting on top of it sounds, again, like classic Tim Ferriss. It is. Like, it I'm going to tweak and hack my way through to like yeah whatever it is i want yeah well I've, i recognize that this is probably maybe the first and last time that i will do a silent retreat almost certainly the first and last time that i'll have the opportunity to do it with jack so if it's necessary as it is for instance and i do not recommend this i'm not a doctor don't play one on the internet but as it is with certain psychedelic practices to reach escape velocity i don't want to be suborbital for the experience. If this is my one shot to get on the playing field, uh, so I wanted to use fasting as one tool to intensify the practice and to be in deep ketosis at the time, which I was, which is a fasting physiolog physiological state where your your body ceases to use largely glucose and instead uses something called ketone bodies. And uh, up to day five, I was tracking with with pretty much everyone else, and I say that because, of course, I'm not talking at all. Uh, with with one or two exceptions, because you meet, say, every other day for 10 or 15 minutes with one of the teachers to, my word's not theirs, but ensure you're not having a complete psychotic break. <laughs> and then there are these Dharma talks for, let's say, 45 minutes to an hour and a half each evening, where one of the teachers leading the retreat will talk about some aspect of the practice. And that is sometimes 
scripture Buddha related very often is sometimes technical, which is what I was really hungry for pun intended, but uh, up to day five. And they would say things like, Oh, it's so nice to see like day three is the hardest or day two is the hardest. And everyone you'd hear this sigh of relief, like, Oh, I'm not alone. And then as it moved on, be like, you know, in our meetings with all of you, it's so nice to see all of you dropping into a peaceful state and really quieting down. And about 90% of the audience would have a sigh of relief and 10% would be like, what the f are they talking about? And then day six, I had this very profound blissful experience where I left the meditation hall. I was getting claustrophobic, not under the medical definition of claustrophobia, but I was, I just had to get out of that room. I was just, it was too much. I was like, God, I, I cannot stare at this person's ass in front of me for another two seconds. I just have to get out of this room and like, listen to that woman over there who like will not stop clearing her throat or whatever. I was just like, I, 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 it's, I need to get outside. So I went outside, which, which Jack had recommended actually. And went on this beautiful hike up to this vista overlooking some of the surrounding mountains. I mean, it's such a stellar environment. It really looks, for people who want to envision it, it looks like a, a mountaintop Japanese yes. monastery. Yeah. It's exquisite. And this was about 3.30, 4 o'clock, and the, it's starting to, the, the sunlight's starting to dim into dusk, and you can hear the animal noises change, and I'm sitting on this bench, which I later found out, I think it's pronounced Anicca, A-N-I-C-C-A, which means impermanence, which in retrospect is kind of hilarious. But I'm sitting there, and I just dropped into this very profound, blissful state where the back pain, the hip pain, things that had been killing me, because for those people listening, keep in mind, I'd gone from meditating 20 minutes a day to, what is it, 10, yeah. 12 it's hours a, a day? It's, it's a, a lot. lot of sitting. Some of it is walking. Some of it's walking. Yes, but nonetheless. Nonetheless, a lot of sitting. Yes. And uh, the physical pain melted away. I'm sitting on a hard bench. I'm not even using any cushions completely. And uh, at the risk of making my younger self puke all over himself, I will say I felt this melting away of armor and this opening in my chest. I, I very commonly or historically, I should say, have felt a tightening in my chest, specifically right to the left of my sternum whenever I felt anger or frustration or impatience coming on. And... Vipassana and the teacher's recommendations and the techniques that they discussed were very helpful for paying attention to the bodily sensations, which I hadn't really focused on before. And I felt that open up and melt in such a way that it literally felt like I had cold water poured on my chest and my back. It felt like my shirt was soaking wet. It was a very odd sensation. I may or may not have been using adjunct therapies at the time. What? What? <laughs> uh, and Wait, so you had, you had, you had stopped fasting? I had stopped fat. This was the day after the fast. Uh, well, what were the adjunct therapies? Uh, I had, a few days into it, been supplementing with psilocybin, or ground mushrooms in this case. While on a meditation retreat? Yeah. <laughs> Which I found out later, because I was reading... Uh, why Why did you do that? Once again, I did not want to risk the possibility. I, would, I, I decided I would rather overshoot than stay suborbital if it was necessary to, if the benefits were to be had on the other side of that atmospheric barrier. And uh, we should also check on statute of limitations because I don't want to get myself necessarily monkey behind bars. But 
hypothetically, if I were to use these things, what might happen? Uh, I found out later after reading some additional literature because I do su- I support scientific research at Johns Hopkins and other yes, places where they're studying at Johns Hopkins. That's right. Literally studying what psilocybin does to meditators. That's right. That's right. So I'm supporting that study as well as a few of a few others related to end of life anxiety in terminal cancer patients and uh, a few other population studies. With uh, and now Roland in no way would have suggested that I do what I did. Roland uh, Griffiths is, Roland, is Roland the Griffiths. professor at, at uh, the scientist at yeah. Johns Hopkins. Yeah, so he he had no hand in this. This was this was all Tim Ferriss. And but I found out I, I realized later when I was doing a post game analysis of what transpired, which I'll get to in a moment, that it's very common under certain circumstances that people will relive childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. So you layer on top of that. Fasting. So I, I had fasted, and then I had this incredible opening. We can, we could call it on day six, and then day, on the bench on the bench. Yes. and then day seven. So this is a ten day experience. On day seven, all hell broke loose, and from that moment on, from that moment until the end of the meditation retreat, I felt like I was going completely insane. Any past trauma, any severe wounds psychologically or otherwise that I had received, say, in childhood, were being replayed for me 24-7 in high def to the extent that I would lay in bed. And the schedule typically involves going to bed around 9, 30, 10 o'clock and then waking up at 5 a.m. I would get in bed at 10 and I would sweat through my sheets. It was cold at night. Sweat through my sheets from 10 to 1 or 2 in the morning and then wake up at 5. At this point, were you continuing with the psilocybin? Uh, let me think about that for a second. I stopped on day 8. So I stopped, on day, I stopped at the beginning of day 8. But the trauma loops were playing yeah. even after you stopped. I'd already hit play. Right. And uh, there was no stop button. So the... And what... K- 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 I, I don't want to get overly personal. I mean, although we do that a lot on this podcast, but yeah. so only say what you want to say, but can you give us a sense of w- what the movies were showing? Sure. I'll give one example. I may regret it, but I'll give it anyway. One example was uh, I had a babysitter at one point whose boyfriend was an alcoholic and a construction worker big fan of the three stooges and professional wrestling and his sport was to come home get blitzed and then choke me to near unconsciousness a few times a week that would be one example mm. right and i hadn't thought of that in a very long time i'd compartmentalized it very neatly and had assumed it one and done locked away never to interfere with my life again not the way the mind works not the way the mind works and uh, so imagine then, if you will, decades later, laying in bed, sweating through your sheets, having that replayed as if you are experiencing it mm-hmm. again. And uh, I was very fortunate that Jack was there and told him, well, I put my cards on the table at that point. And he, he is almost without a doubt the most purely compassionate human being I've ever met. It's remarkable. And it's something I noticed before I went to the retreat, something I noticed during, and certainly something I've noticed after. Uh, But if he had not been there, I think that I would have come out of that retreat much worse off than when I went in. And it turns out that my understanding is 
let's just call it 10 to 15% of people who go to retreats like this have the experience that I had. And you just, <laughs> beforehand, when I filled out the, uh, I suppose you would call it admission form, they ask you a lot of questions about past trauma and so on. And I was like, nope, fine. Yeah, no, absolutely fine. Nope, never had that experience. Da, da, da. I didn't know I was in the 10 to 15%. That's the scary part to me is that there is 10 to 15%, but in my case, and I would imagine in other cases, you just don't know if you're in that mm-hmm. 10 to 15%. And it ended up being a real gift, although very, very painful gift. And uh, that for that reason, let me take a back step. Jack was important, not just because he's compassionate. He was important because he is personally he has personally interacted with a hundred thousand retreatants. He also has a PhD in clinical psychology. So he's dealt with veterans who have had limbs blown off and have phantom limb syndrome. He has dealt with gang members, gang members, adolescents who are cutters. He's dealt with that. He has a very, very well honed toolkit. He's a giant. Yeah. He's, he's just a tremendously gifted human being. Uh, and not to say the other teachers aren't, but they don't have that breadth of experience. So I, if Jack had not been there, I think it would have been a train wreck. And for that reason, when people say, oh, how was your, first of all, like, oh, how was your silent retreat? The hard to answer quickly, right? <laughs> I usually just say difficult. I'm glad I did it. Thank God for Jack. That's my short answer. But when people ask me, should I do a silent retreat? My first answer is no. I say no, because I don't know if you're in the 15%. Hmm. And if you are, and you don't have a Jack there, you're just, you're on the Autobahn without uh, with without an airbag, without a, without a seatbelt on. Well, what I was, will say is that the places like Spirit Rock and Insight Meditation Society, where which is the sister organization in Massachusetts, yeah, right? in Massachusetts, they do actually have pretty really good protocols in place for dealing with this stuff. Um, that being said, Jack is uniquely skilled, but they, they you know, they see these people coming through all the time. Sure. Um, yeah, no, I, and, and for what it's worth, I mean, I don't know what the experiences were of the other retreatants by virtue of it being a silent retreat. Yeah. Uh, it didn't seem, I mean, I spoke to a few people at a very tough time, uh, and I certainly didn't share with them the details of my inner experience. I just said it was very hard. Maybe they were doing the same thing. But I don't mean to imply that Jack is a non-recurring phenomenon and that the others the other teachers are incapable at any of these retreat centers. But I do certainly mean to convey that he was, I trusted Jack. I didn't know the other teachers. So I would, I would not have, even though they might have been perfectly capable of helping and qualified, I would not have felt confident or comfortable opening up to them. What did he, how did he help? Cause you came to him with a real, with real need. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't want to, it was within the confidence of our session. So I, I don't want to give too much. And I don't think I could actually even replicate, simulate what he did, but he, Jack listens. He doesn't just hear you and then respond with one of six stock answers. And I did experience that a little bit elsewhere where it's like, Oh, well, have you heard of the four feathers of the four arrows of suffering or something like that? Right. <laughs> Whatever it might be. And I'm like, no. And I see that you've pulled out one of your <laughs> six, you know, if, if 
patient says this, then I say that cards, uh, he would listen and he listened so intently that, and this is true over the last five years also of doing a lot of deliberate inner work to, uh, heal some really old stuff, especially in the last year. I've realized that like there's, there's hearing, there's listening, and then there's listening, mm-hmm. right? And there's watching and there's seeing, and then there's seeing where someone doesn't look at you. They look into you mm-hmm. and they see things that you might be trying to say, but you can't even express. Jack has that ability on a very, very deep level. And so you feel at least I felt, and this is, I know it's not unique to me with him that, and I also had a very deep connection to a woman named spring Washam there. <laughs> who, who, I'm laughing because spring who also has been on this podcast was the person who gave me the advice on my first retreat oh, no that kidding. led to the, one of the most profound moments of my entire life. All right. The spring is amazing. She's very gifted. Yes, she is. And I had, I had a very deep connection with her, but she <clears throat> needed to travel and couldn't stay for the entire retreat. So I only had one meeting with her, but I knew from the very first moment I interacted with her very briefly for a host of reasons. Actually, I didn't know the reasons at that point. I just felt like she and I had things to talk about. She's also done a lot of work with psychedelics. Yes. And I I feel like I have a bit of a radar for that now. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so springs me. Let me tell you another like crazy just to, to get really woo woo and hand wavy. So before I had gone on my retreat, I have this newsletter that goes out every Friday called five bullet Friday that I, it's just cool stuff that I found or things I'm thinking about, whatever it might be. And it's something fun for me. It's almost like a diary and because I'll never actually sit down and do a dear diary entry. And one of the entries is quote, I'm pondering when I find quotes I like. I put them into this and I had selected a quote about three months before the retreat by spring, not knowing anything about her scheduled it. It came out the week after the retreat. And then I put the pieces together. Oh my (laughs) God, it's the same spring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, but, but it, she also, uh, and I'm sure many people do, but but Jack's ability to see beyond seeing and listen beyond listening is very well developed. And you could say trained. It's absolutely trained. Absolutely trained. I mean, I think he has that uh, superpower. Sounds so ridiculous. He has that faculty. He has a highly developed uh, capacity for that. Just like you might look at someone with certain insertion points in their Achilles tendon, you're like, all right, that person can jump really high. I know already just by looking at the anatomy of their calves, they can jump a lot higher than I can. I think Jack is predisposed to having a very high capacity, but then he developed it. Right. So you referred to it as a gift earlier. The yes, the, the yes. difficulty of the in, in what way? And there, what? How? Where has it left you? Yeah, it's been. It's very clear. Uh, what I realized is that the let's just say 27 or 47 or 64, whatever number of issues I might have that I'm consciously aware of things that have sabotaged relationships, things that have led me to be brutal with myself, things that have, 
uh, stymied me or confused me in some way or behaviors that have been inexplicable to me, right? Like self-defeating behaviors that I know are self-defeating and yet they persist. Why? I, I've, and what I realized, which in a way is, was very reassuring or uplifting and in other ways, very intimidating is that they all, they were all the same thing. They all tracked back to that unresolved childhood trauma or a lot of the trauma. And, and you, are you referring to one thing from your childhood or just generalized no, trauma? The, the, from like childhood? the gestalt of all of that stuff that I had locked in a box and buried a hundred feet underground, expecting it never to surface again. So then the question was like, well, okay, now what, you know, what do you do with that? Yeah. It's one thing to be aware of a problem. It's quite another to have a plan or confidence that you can resolve the problem. Uh, Jack, uh, yeah, Jack was very, very helpful once again in uh, making a number of recommendations. I will, I'm not going to repeat them here because we're getting into some very serious stuff. And I, I think people should seek professional help if, if they, if, if they feel like this resonates and they have some deep, you know, deep painful experiences that haven't been resolved, but he recommended a number of uh, trauma specialists for me to look into. And I began to think more about how I might also do not detective work, but what other modalities might also be worth testing to help with this now that I felt I had identified the target. Right. And, uh, as soon as I got out of the retreat, you know, fortunately I'm very good at making plans and scheduling things and <laughs> getting things done. And so I was like, all right, well this, this is the work. Like all the business stuff that I was thinking about, all the New Year's resolutions, all second place, not second place, like 97th place and everything in between from one to 96 is this work. Uh, so between the silent retreat, which was in October and now that's all I've been focused on. Good for you. And, um, yeah, yeah. I feel, uh, you know, threw a lot at it, you know, everything in the kitchen sink and, Including more meditation, I would assume a certain amount of therapy, but also meditation. Uh, yep. With very, very, very qualified supervision. And uh, it's been the most powerful, uh, or I would say transformative three months of my life, almost certainly. You're going to write no, about with, it? No, without question, I'm hedging. Yeah, without question. You're going to write about it? I would like to. Uh, I would like to. I feel conflicted about it because when you have with great audience comes great responsibility. And what I've realized particularly with, uh, particularly with a, an audience that is, let's just say roughly 70%, 20 to 40 year old hard charging type a males who don't always have the best instincts when it comes to self-preservation. If you have millions of those, statistically, let's just pretend it's a city. It's like some percentage of those people are going to kill themselves. Some percentage of those people are going to do bad things to other people. Some percentage don't follow directions and it's not any fault in the audience. It's just a game of numbers. And what I realized is, for instance, there's a chapter in the four hour body on my second book on breath holding. That was David Blaine, the illusionist and endurance artist taught me how to hold my breath and go from 45 seconds to almost four minutes. 
and he's he at one point held number of world records related to that chapter full of warnings i mean all caps all bold warnings throughout the entire chapter and nonetheless uh there were a number i remember at one point one reader left a blog post and was like yeah i went i tried and i said never never try this in water over and over again and then uh, there was a blog post at one point or a blog comment that i saw which said i went to the public pool and i tried this and i passed out and then the lifeguard pulled me out and i dislocated my shoulder he's like what should i how should i train this properly and i was just like oh my god this is this is there's so little upside here and so massive a downside that i took it out of the book so chapter came out and uh with this type of work particularly if if i were to write about this there is if i were to be truthful there's no way that i could omit plant medicine there's, there's, there's no way. Plant medicine, meaning like right, ayahuasca, that, uh, psilocybin. Right. There are many. But the, there many, are people talking about this in responsible ways. Spring, who's been on the show, has talked yeah. about it. Michael Pollan has a book coming out. I'm sure you know that you yeah. know about about plant medicine. So you could do it. I could. Uh, I could. I I just recognize that as powerful as these tools are. The power that they have to heal is equal in their power to destabilize. Sure. I mean, as Sam has described, that you're getting on a rocket and you don't know where the rocket's going. Right. And as Sam has also said, you will develop, if you go deep enough, a profound empathy for people with mental illness. Because you will walk down the street and you will have experienced, in some capacity, what those people are experiencing. Right. And, uh, not, and, and I should say, you know, not everyone comes out and this is, this is on, this is an unpopular thing to say, but with these compounds, particularly if people have a history of schizophrenia, which they may not even be aware of, right? If they've not had a thorough family medical history in some way explained to them by their parents or grandparents and aunts and uncles who may also not have ever labeled it as such you can go off the rails and not come back. Mm. Uh, so I feel a tremendous responsibility to think through the ramifications before getting into it. But there, if, if I were, I've been keeping notes for five years on all this, I have the raw material for a book and it's just a question of, of when, when, and if I will feel that the calculus makes sense if I'm the mayor of the city. Yeah. Just, yeah, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. I get it. I get it. I understand your reticence. I have a mm-hmm. comment and then a last question. Mm-hmm. The comment is, the word that comes to mind for me is is bravery. I mean, it requires a lot of bravery for, for you to discuss this publicly, A, and B, to do the work. So I commend you for that, and I Thank wish you. you the best of luck as you continue to do the work, because it, it will last the rest of your life, you know, working on your own well-being, and that that is the work of a lifetime. So. Thank you. I, I have a lot of respect for what you're working on. Thank you. The final question I have uh, before I let you go is um, Tools of Titans. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Tribe of Mentors. It's, confu- of- it's confusing. They both start with T. I do the yeah. same thing. Tools of Titans was the uh, penultimate book, the mm-hmm. ultimate. Well, it's not going to be your last book, but the, this, the, the, the second most recent book is Tools of Titan. This one is called Tribe of Mentors. Can you just kind of give, give it, t- tell, tell us a little bit about it? 
Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll say a little bit about it, and then I'd love to make a closing comment that's related, but not entirely related to Great. the book. Mike yeah, is yours. Yeah, Tribe of Mentors, very simple, is, I, I'd have, well, we've talked about it. I'd, I'd have, I've had a very, very tough last two years. A lot of beauty, but also some real cracks in the cosmic egg and some extreme emotional pain beyond anything I've experienced in decades. On top of that, a number of close friends passed away, including one of the mentors and tribe of mentors, Terry Lachlan, very unexpected, the man who taught me how to swim when I was in my 30s, believe it or not. Uh, and I had a lot of questions come up as I turned 40 about a year ago. And um, yeah, turning 40 doesn't scare me. That didn't throw me off kilter. I take good care of myself. I feel very good about it. But it was a milestone that led me to revisit a lot of my priorities, my life, my friends, my goals, how my behaviors had led me or misled me in different ways up to this point. I had a lot of questions and I decided to take those questions after I boiled it down to about 11 questions and ask for help, which is something I'm not historically good at. So I, I like rather than just sit down, and try to figure it out on paper, which is not always <laughs> seldom the best approach for me. I decided to take those 11 questions and send them to about 130 people who were some of the most impressive uh, minds and hearts I could track down. So people involved with meditation like Sharon Salzberg, people involved with, say, addiction research and medicine as well as plant medicine like Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate, also including icons of, say, sport like Kelly Slater, most decorated surfer of all time, or Maria Sharapova. You name it, right? You've got the uh, authors of all different types. Sam Harris is in there. And to try to borrow from their answers, to learn from their answers. And um, the book is a collection of short profiles, including their answers. So there are 130. They range, I would say, in length from 2 to 10 pages. Uh, uh, Yuval Harari of Sapiens closes out the book. You would like his, I think you'd like his his profile. I want him on the show he is so he's fascinating listening. yeah he might be on a two-month meditation retreat um, he's you a never serious know. meditator serious meditator and actually i owe him a thank you so his profile was the final nudge that got me oh wow to press go and do the silent retreat because he talked about how his first silent retreat fundamentally changed his entire life and how none of his books would have happened had it not been for that and the subsequent meditative practice i could say the same thing for myself yeah so so that's that and then in terms of closing comments i'd just like to say to people and if anything i've said is has resonated in terms of if we zoom out the fact that i i have spent my entire life minus the most recent six months let's say it at best tolerating myself typically loathing myself and being extremely brutal, brutal. I didn't view myself as worthy of love, certainly not self-love. It seems self-indulgent. And I'd focused on just becoming an instrument of competition and that I could help other people experience joy, but that my function was to be an instrument of high pain tolerance and competition. And that that was my function. That was just it. Like frogs are frogs, horses are horses. Tim is... (laughs) a instrument of competition with high pain tolerance. And I just want to say to anyone who feels like they merely tolerate themselves that you, a, you cannot love other people fully if you merely tolerate yourself. And uh, I actually read 
quote from Gertrude Stein recently, of all people, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was, you know, we, we, we must remember that the golden rule goes in both directions. Mm. So people are familiar with the do unto others as you would do unto yourself, have them do unto you. But you also need to do unto yourself as you would do unto others. And uh, developing your relationship with yourself as a friend. I found loving kindness, meta meditation, very helpful for this. Another gift that Jack and uh, I think her name was Kanda, a meditation teacher at spirit rock. And I remember sitting down and telling them that I'd found the meta M E T T A Jack signs all of his emails, much meta, <laughs> which is loving kindness meditation where you project goodwill and love and well wishes and lack of pain and suffering to people. And I had done this for mentors and teachers and friends and loved ones. And right before I was about to leave this other meditation teacher, I want to say it was Kanda. I apologize to her if it's not the right name, but I'm getting close said, just a quick question. Have you done any loving kindness projected at yourself or at younger versions of yourself or versions of yourself that were afraid or hurt? I said, no, didn't even occur to me. And she was like, yeah, I think you should try that. And that was a huge, huge game changer. And I would just say, not to be too long winded about it, that if you feel like you have been or are in a place like I've described for myself for my entire life, I would underscore that you don't have to choose that path. There are other paths you can choose. You can choose a path of light and love and forgiveness towards yourself. And if you had told me this a year ago that that could be developed, I would have, I would not have believed it. But I sit here right now today feeling like living proof that it is possible. You do have to do the work. You are going to have to face a lot of pain. But if you put in the work and you focus and you dedicate yourself to that as your top priority, that it can be done. I'm incredibly glad and grateful that you said that. It is not long-winded. There are fewer, more important things, sentiments, I think, that can be imparted, could be boiled down to what I view as the animating inside of my whole meditation evangelical side hustle, which is the mind is trainable. Yeah. We're not stuck with all of the psychological and stuff that you don't like. Um, yeah. And you are living proof of that. So. Thank you. Yeah, the mind is trainable and the heart is openable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. I Thanks really so appreciate it. Thanks so much for having it. me. I've wanted to have a conversation with you for a long time. So this is fun. Thank you. This, this surpassed even my, my, my already high expectations. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. 
Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. <laughs>